listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss a little topic that perhaps you haven't heard about before, and you may be hearing about it here for the first time. I haven't heard anybody else out there really talking about this, but this is a thing. It's called Moral Bioenhancement, and we're going to be hearing more about this in the very near future, I'm sure, if we haven't been hearing about it already. And, honestly, I'm not sure if we will really even hear about it, but I assure you, people in positions of power would very much like to apply this notion across the board. And what are we talking about when we're talking about moral bioenhancement? Moral bioenhancement. What is that? Well, we're going to get into that tonight. We're going to talk about this, and we're going to discuss the state of things and what's been actually talked about in many of these scientific journals about this topic. And this has everything to do with cognitive things. Moral bioenhancement. Cognitive enhancement. So this has transhumanism written all over it. Let's be clear about that. The transhumanist notion of things is very much inherent in this whole notion. So when we're talking about technologies to enhance our cognitive abilities, also along with that comes ethical implications. And with these ethical implications, you have various of these people in the academic community and scientific community discussing a lot of these notions and the moral implications of this cognitive enhancement that may be coming in the near future. So let's get into it, and we're going to read from several different publications tonight just to lay the groundwork for this, and uh, I'll, I'll connect some dots for you. And some of what you're going to hear is probably pretty shocking, even in this modern era. Even in this world we're accustomed to, when we realize that it's total scumbags who run the place, dark occultists and the like, who actually run things here. Hearing this out of the mainstream scientific community, out of mainstream scientific and academic journals, peer-reviewed scientific and academic journals, this kind of stuff can still be shocking to hear. Because this goes beyond speculation and conspiracy theory, this is real stuff that's been written about and discussed and thought about by people who seek to implement some of these goals. So let's get into it. So what is moral bioenhancement? And we'll read a little bit about this. This term first came into being in a paper that was published back in 2008 that laid down the foundation for what this is, talking about cognitive enhancement and the implications thereof, and that there had to be some type of ethics or moral uh, kind of framework around all of it, with the, the possibility of human beings with advanced cognitive abilities coming into being. So, <clears throat> with that being the case, the term was introduced in 2008. But we're going to begin tonight from a paper that was written in 2014, titled Egalitarianism and Moral Bioenhancement by one Mr. Robert Sparrow. And this was in the Journal of Bioethics back in 2014. And this one will kind of lay the framework for what we're talking about. So we're going to read from the abstract here. 
It says, a number of philosophers working in applied ethics and bioethics are now earnestly debating the ethics of what they term moral bioenhancement. I argue that the society-wide program of biological manipulations required to achieve the purported goals of moral bioenhancement would necessarily implicate the state in a controversial moral perfectionism. Moreover, the prospect of being able to reliably identify some people as, by biological constitution, significantly and consistently more moral than others would seem to pose a profound challenge to egalitarian social and political ideals. Even if, more bi if moral bioenhancement should ultimately prove to be impossible, there is a chance that a bogus science of bioenhancement would lead to arbitrary inequalities in access to political power or facilitate the unjust rule of authoritarians. In the meantime, the debate about the ethics of moral bioenhancement risks reinvigorating dangerous ideas about the extent of natural inequality in the possession of the moral faculties. So I'm going to pause there. So that was the abstract of this paper. So what exactly was he saying here? Well, essentially what this author is saying is that the notion of moral bioenhancement in and of itself leads to this notion that there are some people that have some biological factor in their makeup that makes them more moral than others. And that's the notion behind this. There would have to be something that is identified as a physical trait, an inherent genetic trait or some such thing, in order for this to be possible. So we're talking about genetic perfectionism as one thing, and the notion that certain people with certain characteristics or genetic predispositions have more morals or ethical behaviors than others. So that's the implication that's being made here first and foremost. So he's saying that even if that's not true, we could have some pseudosciences pop up around this, or bogus science as he called it, of bioenhancement that would lead to arbitrary inequalities in the access to political power and various other factors in society. So this would give perhaps different preferences, preferential treatment to certain people groups, depending on, say, I don't know, family genetics, family lineage, this kind of thing. So could you see where this is leaning? This leans towards eugenics in application, really, when it gets down to it. So essentially, with the rise of the possibility of these different types of uh, enhancements or modifications that human beings can make to their cognitive abilities, there's also implications for this moral side of things as well. So from there, let's take a look at another paper here. This one is published in 2022, February. And this one is titled The Kantian Promise and Peril of Moral Bioenhancement by Carolina Kudlek and Patrick Taylor Smith. And this one was published in the Journal of Applied Philosophy, volume 39. We'll read the abstract from this one. Moral bioenhancement, abbreviated MBE, 
aims to fix our moral agency itself in order to prevent us from engaging in negligent or harmful behavior. Going to pause right there, folks. This is the argument made by technocrats and academicians. Academics, you know, all those eggheads that sit around university thinking about how much better they are than the average person because they've they've gotten this upper crust education at an Ivy League school or some such thing and they see themselves as being superior in that way because they have tenure and stuff like that, all these egghead professors sitting around thinking in these ways. But this is what they're saying here. So the whole notion of moral bioenhancement. See, people are dumb. And sometimes they do things that are harmful to themselves. So it should be should be something we can do with our scientific knowledge and our technology to make people, to force people to not engage in this negligent or harmful behavior. And that's the whole notion of moral bioenhancement. Let's read on here. So it says, although such self-paternalistic practice might very well produce good outcomes, it can be argued, inspired by Kant, that it is intrinsically disrespectful towards our future agency. Hence, we are faced with the following ethical dilemma. The failure to engage in MBE, or moral bioenhancement, seems reckless and negligent, which can be considered a serious moral wrong. But engaging in MBE presupposes that we treat our faculties, our future agency, in a disrespectful, self-paternalistic manner. In this article, we want to resolve the described dilemma by suggesting a novel way of understanding Kantian objections to MBE. We argue that a careful engagement with Kantian moral psychology does provide a space for MBE, but that it also describes a potential danger of MBE that has, at best, been only superficially described. That is, we offer a different Kantian understanding of MBE as a means to bring our empirical and noumenal selves together as a coherent whole to achieve what Kant describes as, quote, genuine accountability to others, end quote. So, I'm going to stop right there with that one. So we see here, these academic eggheads, these technocrats, these people who think they're so much smarter and better than everybody else, that realize people do things that are self-harmful and harmful to the greater good. So they argue in favor of moral bioenhancement. And of course, they'll go back and they'll quote some of their favorite philosophers like Kant or Nietzsche or some of these other ones that they like to throw out there in their arguments. And they'll say, well, you know, Kant's objections to this uh, would probably be a misnomer because, you see, the overall nature of it is that the greater good would suffer if we are not to apply these moral bioenhancement measures if we have the capability to do so and we don't do it. So that being the case, we should do it according to Kant's viewpoint. So that's the argument they make. So they always try to back up the things they want to push and promote by making some type of a straw man argument like that and by using older philosophers and respected theoricians to back up and support their notions of things. This is an old, old science called rhetoric, folks. And that's what these people use in many of their scientific jargony papers like this. They like to use that rhetoric to apply some of the older concepts that are known and some of the older 
the older respected personages of academia and apply some of their ideas and methods to their argument to make it stick. So that's what we're looking at here. So let's go ahead and we'll see. We'll give you a couple more examples here before we really get into the meat and potatoes of what's the important aspects of this. So let's go ahead. We'll explore this a little further. We're going to look at an article written in National Post, a Canadian publication. It says, What if you could take a pill for a better, more moral you? Neuroethicists ponder the panacea. Some envision a day when we could use drugs that act directly on the brain to dial down aggression and other antisocial sentiments and dial up pro-social ones like compassion and trust. Just as an aside, this was written in December of 2016, if you were looking for this. So it says, what if all it took to make you a better human was a little pill? Go vegan, oppose Trump. Drink less, exercise more, have more houseplants. It's the season of self-delusion with Twitter users pledging resolutions they'll make and statistics tell us promptly break. But what if we could be better people with drugs? More moral mortals by taking a pill. Neuroethicists and other thinkers are increasingly absorbed by the idea of moral enhancement through pharmaceuticals, implanted brain electrodes, or other biomedical means. Leading proponents argue advances in cognitive neuroscience suggest morally desirable capabilities may, at least in part, be neurologically and based, and therefore amenable to tinkering. Some envision a day when we could use drugs that act directly on the brain to dial down aggression and other antisocial sentiments and dial up pro-social ones like compassion and trust. Whether that's a good or bad thing is another question. I'm going to pause right there. Yeah, <laughs> that is the question, isn't it? So they introduced in 2016 here through not just this one, but other publications as well. We'll get to that as we progress here. This notion of perhaps making you a better person through pharmaceuticals, through a pill, or through, oh, say, brain implants or various other methods, physiological methods. Let's read on here. Oxford University philosophers Julian Savalewska, Savalescu, excuse me, Julian Savalescu, and Ingmar Pearson have argued that humans now have the means of wiping out life on Earth, and that moral bioenhancement, or MBE, may be our only hope for averting wide-scale terrorism, climate change, and all the other rot in the world. Writing in the journal Neuroethics, they say the capacity for sympathy in particular appears to be biologically based. That's quoting them. That's in quotation marks. So, the capacity for sympathy seems to have, appears to have, a biological basis, according to these people. And they also say that women tend to be more sympathetic than men, suggesting, quote, that MBE, moral bioenhancement, could consist in making men, in general, more like women in general, end quote, at least with regards to sympathy. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Let's think about the world around us since the year 2008, when this, this idea was introduced into the literature here, moral bioenhancement, by these gentlemen, this Julian 
what's his name, Savescu and Pearson. Savescu and Pearson, they're the ones that introduced the notion back in 2008. And it's being quoted here in the National Post of Canada. It says, they and others argue, because the moral character of many people is less than ideal, what's not to love about this new medical approach? Critics such as John Harris, author of How to Be Good, says using chemicals to make humans better animals could undermine our moral freedom. Artificially enhancing people to always be good would rob them of their free will to make and learn from mistakes, they argue. Then there are the questions of what exactly does it mean to be moral and who gets to decide, and I'm going to pause right there. Who does get to decide? What does it mean? Well, in this world full of moral relativism, it could change at the drop of a dime, can't it? What does it mean to be moral? What does it mean to be ethical? Depends who you ask, right? And who gets to decide what's moral and ethical in this way? This is where it gets dicey. So it says, for now... The reality is that there is not much out there that allows us to do these sorts of things, said Queen's University bioethicist Udo Skunklink. Look at the miserable failure that is modern psychiatry. We just don't really understand how the brain works, he added. I'm going to pause right there. So these people that don't really understand how the brain works, well, they are convinced that somehow they could use biological enhancements of some sort to change your moral behaviors to alter your moral and ethical behaviors, but they don't really understand, do they? But that's just, that's the portion of that article we're going to read. Let's move on. Here's another one. This one, this one is from The Conversation. You may have seen The Conversation online, theconversation.com. This one was written August 10th, 2020 by Parker Crutchfield, one of the people who talks about this moral bioenhancement argument all the time in the academic journals. We'll read several of his citations here tonight. Going to lay this out on the table for you folks. And I'll let you draw some conclusions. I don't think I need to connect the dots too much for you to understand what's been done here and what is being done in the name of science. But this is an article from The Conversation titled Morality Pills May Be the U.S.'s Best Shot at Ending the Coronavirus Pandemic, According to One Ethicist. That's right. Remember, COVID. The pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic. Well, they're trying to use this as a leveraging tool for this notion. And I think you could begin to have some of the dots click, clicking together in your mind already, having heard that, just the title of the article. Let's read the article. COVID-19 is a collective risk. It threatens everyone, and we all must cooperate to lower the chance that the coronavirus harms any one individual. Among other things, that means keeping safe social distances and wearing masks. But many people choose not to do these things, making spread of infection more likely. When someone chooses not to follow public health guidelines around the coronavirus, they're defecting from the public good. It's the moral equivalent of the tragedy of the commons. 
if everyone shares the same pasture for their individual flocks, some people are going to graze their animals longer or let them eat more than their fair share, ruining the commons in the process. Selfish and self-defeating behavior undermines the pursuit of something from which everyone can benefit. Democratically enacted enforceable rules mandating things like mask wearing and social distancing might work if defectors could be coerced into adhering to them, but not all states have opted to pass them or enforce the rules that are in place. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Remember, this was written in 2020 in the heart of this absolute crap show that we saw underway. And these are the people that were sounding the bells. These were the ones that would report you to the police if your business was open and you didn't have people wearing masks in there. These are the same type of people. These are these academicians that I'm talking about, these eggheads who think they're so much smarter and better than you and that they have some should have some say over what you do. All in the name of the quote-unquote greater good. Let's read on. Now remember, this was written by Parker Crutchfield. This is one of the main proponents of this moral bioenhancement thing. So he says here, My research in bioethics focuses on questions like how to induce those who are non-cooperative to get on board with doing what's best for the public good. To me, it seems the problem of coronavirus defectors could be solved by moral enhancement. Like receiving a vaccine to beef up your immune system, people could take a substance to boost their cooperative, pro-social behavior. Could a psychoactive pill be the solution to the pandemic? Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So not only is this guy presenting the idea of a pill to make you comply, which, by the way, you know, they have that. That's fluoride. For those who don't know... Fluoride makes you more compliant, more likely to follow orders. The Nazis knew this. They used this. But to step away from that, he's introducing the idea of perhaps a shot, a vaccine to do so. And this idea was introduced also, as well, in the form of a video. You could look this video up on YouTube. Funvax. Look up Funvax. Now, this whole thing was claimed to be a type of satire or a false production. Claimed to be a total production, total fiction. But if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, go look up this video. Funvax. F-U-N-V-A-X. Funvax. It was ostensibly how they presented it. And this was a staged production. But there might be something fundamental behind it. But what this stage production showed was this gentleman claimed to be from the Department of Defense and that they were developing a vaccine during the Gulf War uh, that was to remove the notion of a belief in God from people, from these extremist, fundamentalist, Islamic terrorist groups. So they introduced this fundamentalist vax vaccine, fun vax, they called it, to remove that notion that could take away the belief in God in people. Go watch that video. It's very telling. And even though it is total fiction, I think maybe it was put out there for a reason. You see, this stuff doesn't just get out there by accident all the time, folks. If this idea has been introduced, 
even in the realm of fiction. Look at how much fiction has come to pass through the years, especially if you're looking at science fiction, which this most certainly is. It's a programming template. They use it as a programming template, and we understand this. So just because it is a work of fiction, ostensibly so, or they claim to have debunked it and said it's a work of fiction, does that make it any less concerning? No, it doesn't. Especially when you have eggheads like this talking about a psychoactive pill to change your behavior and make you compliant with social behavior changes like this. So he says here, could a psychoactive pill be the solution to the pandemic? He said it's a far-out proposal that's bound to be controversial, but one I believe is worth at least considering, given the importance of social cooperation in the struggle to get COVID-19 under control. Public goods games show the scale of the problem. Evidence for, from experimental economics shows that defections are common to situations in which people face collective risks. Economists use public goods games to measure how people behave in various scenarios to lower collective risks, such as from climate change or a pandemic, and to prevent the loss of public and private goods. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. What have I always told you about economists? What does an economist do? These are social engineers, folks. That's what an economist does. It has very little to do with actual financial things finances and things like that. It's about social engineering and game theory. They use game theory all the time, as revealed here in this article now. So we see here the notion here that there's a collective risk involved for the quote-unquote greater good or the public good with things associated with climate change named right here as well as situations like a pandemic. So they take that into consideration for this. So it says the evidence from these experiments is no cause for optimism. Usually everyone loses because people won't cooperate. This research suggests it's not surprising people aren't wearing masks or social distancing. Lots of people defect from groups when facing a collective risk. By the same token, I'd expect that as a group, we will fail at addressing the collective risk of COVID-19 because groups usually fail. And then he goes on to quote some statistics about how many had died at this point and stuff like that. So he says, for more than 150,000 Americans so far, this has meant losing everything there is to lose. But don't abandon all hope in some of these experiments. The groups win and successfully prevent the losses associated with the collective risk. What makes winning more likely... Things like keeping a running tally of what others are contributing, observing others' behaviors, communication and coordination, before and during play, and democratic implementation of an enforceable rule requiring contributions. Let's read on and remember this whole situation, this whole response to the pandemic was part of this experiment a continuation of these experiments that this author is speaking about. Make no doubt about it. For those of us in the United States, these conditions are out of reach when it comes to COVID-19. You can't know what others are contributing to the fight against the coronavirus, especially if you socially distance yourself. 
It's impossible to keep a running tally of what the other 328 million people in the U.S. are doing, and communication and coordination are not feasible outside of your own small group. Even if these factors were achievable, they still require the very cooperative behavior that's in short supply. The scale of the pandemic is simply too great for any of this to be possible. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. This guy was drinking the Kool-Aid in a big way. Probably one of the ones pushing the Kool-Aid and poisoning the Kool-Aid. Let's put it bluntly. Promoting cooperation with moral enhancement. It seems that the U.S. is not currently equipped to cooperatively lower the risk confronting us. Many are instead pinning their hopes on the rapid development and distribution of an enhancement to the immune system, a vaccine. No kidding. Remember, this was written in 2020, in the heart of all of this stupid crap that they rolled out on the world, and we didn't really see much of the ramifications of this thing that they were alleged was alleging was so deadly at that time. Remember. He says, but I believe society may be better off both in the short term as well as the long term by boosting not the body's ability to fight off disease, but the brain's ability to cooperate with others. What if researchers developed and delivered a moral enhancer rather than an immunity enhancer? Moral enhancement is the use of substances to make you more moral. The psychoactive substances act on your ability to reason about the right thing to do, or your ability to be empathetic or altruistic or cooperative. And he says, for example, oxytocin, the chemical that, among other things, can induce labor or increase the bond between mother and child, may cause a person to be more empathetic and altruistic, more giving and generous. The same goes for psilocybin. Going to pause for a moment here. The active ingredient in magic mushrooms psilocybin <laughs> so he's even suggesting something like this all right let's read on so he says these substances have been shown to lower aggressive behavior in those with antisocial personality disorder and to approve the ability of sociopaths to recognize emotion in others these substances interact directly with the psychological underpinnings of moral behavior others that make you more rational could also help then perhaps the people who choose to go maskless or flout social distancing guidelines would better understand that everyone, including them, is better off when they contribute and rationalize that the best thing to do is cooperate. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. This guy sounds like an absolute total control freak, doesn't he? control freak and that's how many of these people are they think they're so much smarter and better than you and that you need to listen to them and do what they say it's a power trip it's an ego thing for these people you get it and these people are presenting ideas that in my view are extremely dangerous so it says here moral enhancement as an alternative to vaccines there are, of course, pitfalls to moral enhancement. One is that the science isn't developed enough. For example, while oxytocin may cause some people to be more pro-social, it also appears to encourage ethnocentrism, and so is probably a bad candidate for a widely distributed moral enhancement. 
going to pause for a moment here, folks. Ethno ethnocentrism. Racism. So he's saying it causes racism in people, too. Isn't that interesting that a clinical psychologist like this or, or this guy would would tell you something like that? Isn't that an interesting thing? And you wonder, what's going on in our society today? Think about this. So he says, but that this doesn't mean that a morality pill is impossible. The solution to the underdeveloped science isn't to quit on it, but to direct resources to related research in neuroscience, psychology, or one of the behavioral sciences. Another challenge is that the defectors who need moral enhancement are also the least likely to sign up for it. As some have argued, a solution would be to make moral enhancement compulsory or administer it secretly, perhaps, via the water supply. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. We're going to get to that a little later here. In a paper this guy wrote, Does this sound like somebody who's got their head screwed on straight to you? This sounds like a totally unhinged, massive control freak to me. How dare these people write ethics papers and morality papers and try to tell other people what they should do? Does it get much more unethical or immoral to suggest that you should force somebody to perform your will? Sounds a lot like rape, doesn't it? Cognitive rape. But of course, they don't see it that way because it's about the greater good, right? Think about this. But we'll get to that. It says, these actions require weighing other values. Does the good of covertly dosing the public with a drug that would change people's behavior outweigh individuals' autonomy to choose whether to participate? Does the good associated with wearing a mask outweigh an individual's autonomy to not wear one? The scenario in which the government forces an immunity booster upon everyone is plausible, and the military has been forcing enhancements like vaccines or uppers upon soldiers for a long time. The scenario in which the government forces a morality booster upon everyone is far-fetched, but a strategy like this one could be a way out of this pandemic, a future outbreak, or the suffering associated with climate change. That's why we should be thinking of it now going to pause for a moment here, folks. And now you know the entire reason behind the pandemic has everything to do with this notion of moral bioenhancement. Not just moral bioenhancement, forced moral bioenhancement, covert moral bioenhancement. And if you think that this stuff is total nonsense or total conspiracy theory crap. You're grossly mistaken. Go look up these scientific journals. They absolutely talk about this stuff. These are peer-reviewed science. Peer-reviewed scientific journals. These are intelligent people. Movers and shakers. Want to know a little something about this guy? Want to know a little something about the people who introduced this idea? 
moral bioenhancement. Professor Julian Savulescu is a philosopher who researches the ethics of various new or emerging technologies, including new methods of reproduction and enhancement of physical and cognitive performance through drugs or genetic manipulation. He's the director of the Oxford Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics and is or has been a co-director on many large research projects looking at topics from geoengineering to vaccines... This is the guy, one of the two gentlemen who introduced this idea of moral bioenhancement back in 2008. Here's the other one. Professor Ingmar Pearson, distinguished research fellow and consultant researcher, professor of practical philosophy, Gothenburg University, Sweden. His fields of research are ethics and the philosophy of mind and action. His principal publication is The Retreat of Reason, a Dilemma in the Philosophy of Life, published in 2005. With Julian Savulescu, he is currently writing a book, Fit for the Future, about the mismatch between our moral psychology, which appears to be shaped for life in small communities with simple technology, and the problems we face in modern societies with millions of citizens and a powerful scientific technology. going to pause for a moment. So these are two academic eggheads in the circles around the Rhodes Roundtable groups and the various other think tank groups that are so prominent at Oxford University and some of the others. And they're talking about this very transhumanist-sounding notion of things. Well, you see, we're not equipped for the future in the current state we're in, so we need to be transformed in some way. So here's another article from these guys, Julian Savulescu and Ingmar Pearson, the ones who introduced this idea. Now we'll get to the other guy, this Parker Crutchfield later, who took this, their ideas and their notions, and took them several steps further and went way beyond way beyond, way off the deep end with all of this, in my view. But let's go ahead and read some more. We're going to read from an article here, if I can find it. Seems to have disappeared on me. It's an article from The Monist, a magazine called The Monist. It's a journal article written by these guys. The Monist, Volume 95, Issue 3, July 1st, 2012, published November 22nd, 2014. It's called Moral Enhancement, Freedom, and the God Machine. And unfortunately, it seems I have lost... Oh, here we go. I got it. So let's read this portion of it. Moral Enhancement, Freedom, and the God Machine. The Science of Morality... One of the emerging sub-disciplines of the cognitive sciences is the science of morality. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So they've taken a subjective idea, morality, and now they're claiming it's a science. Well, what does this do? This takes the subjective and makes it objective. It makes it measurable. If you've listened to my show for any length of time, you understand the importance of quantifying a thing and measuring a thing. So this is how they... They build a framework for what they consider moral. So they've turned morality into a science. 
Not a subjective idea, not a philosophy, not a personal thing whatsoever. They claim it's a science. So let's read on again. I'll start that over. One of the emerging sub-disciplines of the cognitive sciences is the science of morality. Advanced techniques in neuroscience, such as neuroimaging, together with sophisticated pharmacological, physiological, psychological, and economic experiments have begun to shed light on the neural and psychological underpinnings of moral judgment and behavior. Such research has created great controversy. Some neuroscientists have argued for brain-based ethics, claiming that moral decisions have to be compatible with our knowledge of the human brain or even directly inferred from it. Neuroscientists have already claimed that their research has dramatic implications for the practice and substance of ethics. It has been argued, for example, that neuroscientific findings show that political debate is conducted largely at the emotional level or that they undermine the common ethical practice of appealing to intuitions. Moreover, it has been claimed that such research undermines common moral views, exposing Kantian ethics as a mere confabulation based on gut reactions and supports utilitarianism. Some ethical positions have been criticized as neurally implausible. Moral Enhancement Although these claims are at this point speculative, science is likely to reshape our conceptions of justified morality. Indeed, it might even offer means of conforming to morality. In a recent series of articles and books, Pearson and Savulescu, we have argued that there is an urgent need to explore the possibility of using the emerging science of morality to develop means of enhancing moral dispositions. The argument goes roughly like this. And I'm going to pause. I'm not going to go into their arguments for it. I think we've discussed already some of their arguments for this. We've seen an example in that other magazine article we read so we have this notion of things that they put forward that human beings, well, they just sometimes, they don't do things that are for their own good. Oftentimes you have people who are contrary to what they should be. And this is once again where we come into the Kantian promise and peril of moral bioenhancement, that, that one that we read earlier here. Same type of a notion being demonstrated there. That even though even though people have free will, there are many who think that that's actually more of a hindrance for the greater good than anything. And they argue that. And of course, they talk about pharmaceutical drugs and this kind of a notion, but we've also heard mention of brain implants and various other methods mentioned for the potential for moral bioenhancement. So let's read here next from another paper here. This one's called Building Moral Brains, Moral Bioenhancement and the Being of Technology. This one 
was published in Maynooth Philosophical Papers, number 10, September 23, 2020, by one Mr. Jeffrey P. Bishop. So what does he have to say here? Building Moral Brains, Moral Bioenhancement, and the Being of Technology. Here's the abstract, folks. Technology is evolving at a fast rate, a rate faster than human evolution, especially human moral evolution. There are those who claim that we must morally bioenhance the human due to existential threats such as climate change and the looming possibility of cognitive enhancement, and due to the fact that the human animal has a weak moral will. To address these existential threats, we must design human morality into human beings technologically. By moral bioenhancement, these authors mean that we must intervene technologically in the biology of the human animal in order to get it to behave morally to address these existential threats. And he says he will bring the idea of moral bioenhancement into the conversation with two philosophers of technology in this article. Bernard Steigler has argued that technology and culture, and thus technology and human beings, have always evolved hand in hand. Peter Paul Verbeek notes that we have always designed morality into technology, and thus he sees technology as mediating human morality. When we offload human intentionality onto technology, Verbeek argues, technological objects and systems participate in shaping the moral subjectivity of the human actor. And he says he will show that modern technological bioenhancement obliterates a human being. Whereas in the past, human culture was handed from generation to generation through the mediation of technology, in the modern era, the human becomes the raw material upon which a technological will overrides. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this is talking about, well, something that sounds very transhumanist, doesn't it? The notion that the technologies determine what morality and ethics will be in this type of a notion. If you want to get down to it. So how do they justify this notion of moral bioenhancement? And what exactly do they have in mind? Well... The, that Parker Crutchfield fellow talked about putting stuff in the water supply. Possible pharmacological things. Brain chips. Genetic modification. All kinds of different notions have been introduced, but how do they justify this? Well, let's read this one. This is from the Journal of Medical Ethics, 2017, October, by Elvio Baccarini. This one's called The Moral Bioenhancement of Psychopaths. We argue that the mandatory moral bioenhancement of psychopaths is justified as a prescription of social morality. Moral bioenhancement is legitimate when it is justified on the basis of the reasons of the recipients. Psychopaths expect and prefer that the agents with whom they interact do not have certain psychopathic traits. 
Particularly, they have reasons to require the moral bioenhancement of psychopaths with whom they must cooperate. By adopting a public reason and a Kantian argument, we conclude that we can justify to a psychopath being the recipient of a mandatory moral bioenhancement because he has a reason to require the application of this prescription to other psychopaths. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So they're saying because a psychopath is a danger to society, and there are more than one psychopaths, <laughs> there's more than one psychopath out there, that a psychopath can also be in danger of another psychopath. So therefore, it's in their best interests to undertake this forced moral bioenhancement. Ethically speaking, of course. You see how they justify everything in these types of ways? Here's another one. Here's another one. This one. This one comes directly from PubMed. PubMed. Bioethics Inquiry, 2017, December. Vojin Rakic. The issues of freedom and happiness in moral bioenhancement, continuing the debate with a reply to Harris Wiseman. So he says, during the previous years, Harris Wiseman has devoted substantial attention to this particular author's stance on voluntary moral bioenhancement. He argued that he has been influenced by that position, but nonetheless criticized it. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So somebody who might have some type of an apprehension about moral bioenhancement, like the author of this paper, the others in the field that are talking about it, they don't like their position on it. And they criticize it. They think bioenhancement, moral bioenhancement, should be done. Should be done. And, well, let's read on. I won't put words in their mouths. So he says, I haven't replied to his criticisms yet and wish to do so now. One of the reasons is to avoid my position being misrepresented. By replying to Wiseman's criticisms, I also wish to clarify those issues in my standpoint that might have given rise to some of the misinterpretations. With the same purpose in mind, I will demarcate my concept of voluntary moral bioenhancement from related standpoints, in particular from Pearson and Savalescu's notion of moral bioenhancement. So we get a counterpoint here. So there are some people in the conversation that seem opposed to this, but by and large, there's a lot of attack dogs that are pro-moral bioenhancement out there in the literature that beat these people down and don't think it should be a voluntary thing. Do you get that? Moral bioenhancement. Okay, sounds really fancy, sounds nice. Do you want to be a better person? Sure, who doesn't, right? You want to be more kind to your fellow human being? Sure. Why wouldn't you want to be nice? Why wouldn't you want to be more moral and ethical towards other people? What these people are talking about is totally, totally not that. Not about getting along with people. Not about agreeing to disagree. No, everybody must agree with their stance on all things. You see, with these people, there's no agree to disagree. There's no individualism, no individuality of choice. It's all about the greater good, you see. Everybody should be on board. 
Everybody should be on board, according to these people. So here we go. Let's get back to a different paper here to present these ideas. And I know some of this may sound a little bit dry to you. But this is absolutely necessary because this needs to be made front and center. This notion of moral bioenhancement. And understand the relationship that it has with the events of the past three years, the response to this alleged pandemic situation. It has all the hallmarks of this. You see, they're looking for justification for imposing this on people. And we've seen a demonstration of that to some degree through this. So let's read next from a paper here called The Epidemiology of Moral Bioenhancement by R.B. Gibson. Med Healthcare Philosophy, 2021, March. Abstract. In their 2008 paper, Pearson and Savalescu suggest that for moral bioenhancement to be effective at eliminating the danger of ultimate harm, the intervention would need to be compulsory. This is because those most in need of moral bioenhancement would be least likely to undergo the intervention voluntarily. By drawing on concepts and theories from epidemiology, this paper will suggest that moral bioenhancement may not need to be universal and compulsory to be effective at significantly improving the collective moral standing of human populace and reducing the threat of ultimate harm. And he says he will identify similarities between the mechanisms that allow biological contagions, such as viruses, and behaviors, such as those concerned with ethical and unethical actions, to develop, spread, and be reinforced within a population. It will then go on to suggest that, just as with the epidemiological principle of herd immunity, if enough people underwent moral bioenhancement to reach a minimum threshold, then the incidence and spread of immoral behaviors could significantly be reduced, even in those who have not received moral bioenhancement. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now this guy, trying to take the opposite stance here, I don't think everybody needs to have this as compulsory, but if a large enough population does, then the rest of them will likely fall in line too, much like how herd immunity allegedly works. Notice the implications and the conjectures being put forward here. So here's the notion. Say 69% of the population gets some type of moral bioenhancement. Well, that would be good enough to stop some of the problematic things. Interesting number, 69%. He doesn't bring this up in his paper, at least not to my knowledge. But that's the number of people that are reported to have gotten at least one of these COVID shots, folks, in the world. 69% of the world's population have received at least one COVID shot. Did you know that? That's a massive number. Makes you wonder, what's the true nature of all of this that's been done? Anyway, let's continue on. Here's another one where they'll make the argument again. I, I, I've lost count of how many of these papers we've read so far in articles here. Lost count. Here's another one. The Ethical Desirability of Moral Bioenhancement, a Review of Reasons by Jonah Specker, 
et al. at BMC Medical Ethics 2014. Name of the paper out of PubMed. Here's the abstract background. The debate on the ethical aspects of moral bioenhancement focuses on the desirability of using biomedical as opposed to traditional means to achieve moral betterment. The aim of this paper is to systematically review the ethical reasons presented in the literature for and against moral bioenhancement. And then it goes on for the discussion here. A review was performed and resulted in the inclusion of 85 articles. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. 85 articles as of 2014 about moral bioenhancement. Reasons for it through the academic process here, through in the academic journals. That's a lot of papers about this for something you've never heard of, isn't it? So she says, we classified the arguments used in these articles in the following six clusters. The first cluster is why we don't need moral bioenhancement. The second one is it will not be possible to reach consensus on what moral bioenhancement should involve. The third one is the feasibility of moral bioenhancement and the status of current scientific research. The fourth is the means and processes of arriving at moral improvement rather matter ethically. The fifth portion, arguments related to the freedom, identity, and autonomy of the individual. And the sixth one, arguments related to the social or group effects and dynamics. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this is the key, the arguments for the social or group dynamics and effects. This is the one that's largely been leveraged on by the proponents of this idea, this terrible idea, in my view. Terrible idea, in my view. But let's lay some more groundwork down. We're going to read from another one. This is in the Journal of Bioethics, July 2016. Parker Crutchfield, the one that we read that article from earlier, this is his paper called the, the, Epistemology, the Epistemology of Moral Bioenhancement. Here's the abstract. Moral bioenhancement is the potential practice of manipulating individuals' moral behaviors by biological means in order to help resolve pressing moral issues such as climate change and terrorism. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Climate change and terrorism. And, of course, pandemic response. Uh, don't forget that. Of course, this was 2016. He wrote this one. So I don't think he had such a thing on his radar at that point, but certainly climate change and terrorism, right? So he says, let's continue. He says here that this practice has obvious ethical implications, and these implications have been and continue to be discussed in the bioethics literature. What have not been discussed are the epistemological implications of moral bioenhancement. This article details some of these impl implications of engaging in moral bioenhancement. The argument begins by making the distinguish between moral bioenhancement that manipulates the contents of mental states, e.g. beliefs, and that which manipulates other non-representational states, e.g. Motiva motivations, 
Either way, I argue, the enhanced moral psychology will fail to conform to epistemic norms, and the only way to resolve this failure and allow the moral bioenhancement to be effective in addressing the targeted moral issues is to make the moral bioenhancement covert. Covert. Going to pause for a second here, folks. So not only does this guy want to make moral bioenhancement compulsory, he wants to make it covert. What does that mean? He wants to administer this to people without their knowledge or consent. Sounds a lot like rape to me, doesn't it? Cognitive rape. Let's continue here. He wants to make it covert. That's not bad enough, is it? Let's read another one. This one also from PubMed. Also by Parker Crutchfield in the journal Bioethics. January 2019. The title of this one, and I urge you all, go look this one up. The title of this one, Compulsory Moral Bioenhancement Should Be Covert. Abstract. Some theorists argue that moral bioenhancement ought to be compulsory. I take this argument one step further, arguing that if moral bioenhancement ought to be compulsory, then its administration ought to be covert rather than overt. This is to say that it is morally preferable for compulsory moral bioenhancement to be administered without the recipients knowing that they are receiving the enhancement. My arguments for this is that if moral bioenhancement ought to be compulsory, then its administration is a matter of public health and for this reason should be governed by public health ethics. I argue that the covert administration of a compulsory moral bioenhancement program better conforms to public health ethics than does an overt compulsory program. In particular, a covert compulsory program promotes values such as liberty, utility, equality, and autonomy better than an overt program does. Thus, a covert compulsory moral bioenhancement program is morally preferable to an overt moral bioenhancement program. Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. Did you understand that? According to this guy, it's, well, it's much more ethical to not tell people that you're augmenting them in this way. Should be a covert program. Should be a compulsory program. And it's more humane. Makes them feel that they have autonomy and equality and utility and liberty. Not about whether they actually do or not. It's about whether that they feel that they do. This. This. is a dangerous ideology. This idea was introduced in January of 2019, just prior to the pandemic situation. I'll let you connect some dots with this. 
how far do we have to go here with this for people to understand that there are a bunch of psychopaths out there running things. They think they're better than you. They think they're smarter than you. They think you should do the very things they want you to do because it's for the greater good, for the public health. And that your individuality and your freedom of choice be damned. If it's for the greater good, then you better fall in line. If you don't, we might force you to. And we've seen all kinds, all kinds of manipulations done during this pandemic situation. Trying to coerce people. This was a grand experiment, folks. In my view, I think what was going on is they were testing the waters to see, do we really need to go the route of compulsory, covert, moral, bio-enhancement? Or could we alter the people's behavior in more subtle, traditional ways? What do you think's been done? I'll let that judgment up to you. I think maybe they went with some softer means at first. But I also have my suspicions about what is the true nature of these alleged COVID shots that they keep pushing and pushing and pushing on people despite the fact that they provably do not do what they said. And they are causing more harm than good. Are these an agent of moral bioenhancement? I can't say for sure. The timing of all of this seems suspect, though. The mention of these medical interventions to do so seems suspect. The state of the world seems suspect. What do you think? I'll let you draw your own conclusions on that. But this notion sickens me. And these are these tenured professors sitting at the top of the academic community, raking in six-figure salaries or better, doing very little actual work, if they do any work, and influencing young minds, shaping young minds with this absolute trash this absolute inhuman trash. This is the kind of things they're out there pushing and promoting. They sit around and think about this stuff and read about these philosophers like Kant or Kant. And it's pronounced Kant, don't you know? K-A-N-T. I'd say can't, but uh, they'll pronounce it Kant. And they think these guys are like the, the end-all, be-all of intelligence or smarts. These stuffy academics sitting around with some influence in politics and other places. 
this is the kind of trash they're putting out there. These are the things, the ideas they're promoting. And it's dangerous, in my view. Violates the free will principle. This is exactly what they want. They're all about violating the free will principle. And these same people will go ahead and they'll preach to you about tolerance, inclusivity, diversity, equity. And yet they talk about, just out here in the open, in the academic journals, tons of them. How many of them did I just read for you? They out there, they're out there openly talking about violating people's free will, violating their autonomy without their knowledge or consent, using substances, means of these things, different applications to manipulate these people. They make these suggestions. Now, of course, they'll use the argument, well, we just don't have the science or the technology for that yet. Really? Technology's not there yet, huh? Why don't we look in the Black Budget Special Access Programs that are bare minimum 30 to 50 years ahead of what the public state of the art is in science and technology? Why don't we look at that and consider the possibility? What's really been done here, folks? All I'm saying is they've been talking about this openly since at least 2008, moral bioenhancement. They've been talking about similar terms before that, some as early as 2005, some going back to the 1990s. But the notion of moral bioenhancement wasn't truly introduced in full until 2008. And then this whole notion of adopting it as a compulsory, covert type of an operation was introduced in 2019. And less than a year later, the world fell apart as we know it. And look at the state of the world today. Look at how many people comply to stupid nonsense just because they think they're they're heroes if they do so. They're heroes. How many people are still walking around with a mask on their face in public, driving in their car alone with a mask on their face? Because that next threat might still be out there looming around the corner. There's new variants, you know, and there's disease X that they're talking about. And of course, there's all of these struggles we've had with climate change. All these different notions, and now there's aliens too. <laughs> so we have to be mindful of all of this. What's for the greater good? What's the next approach they're going to take with this? With this notion of the greater good and getting everybody to comply. Comply. 
<clears throat> excuse me, to comply with the nonsense. Well, folks, we can see it's not out of bounds for them to consider manipulating people's biology to bring about these behavior changes that they want in society, force medicating people without their knowledge or their consent. This scumbag, this Parker Crutchfield, even talked about covertly putting stuff in the water supply to do so. We know about the fluoridation of the water. Maybe this guy didn't know about it. Maybe he's another useful idiot. Brain-dead useful idiot. Thinks he's oh so smart and puts out these ideas. In his academic institutions. Come up with all these grandiose schemes. Who is this guy, you might ask? Parker Crutchfield. Adjunct assistant professor. Department of Philosophy, Western Michigan University. Research interests, health care, ethics, research ethics, moral psychology. He's an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at Western Michigan University. Bachelor's degree in philosophy from University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Completed his Ph.D. in philosophy at Arizona State University, working in applied ethics, epistemology, and the philosophy of science. Following graduate school, he was assistant professor of ethics and the inaugural director of research at the Missouri School of Dentistry and Oral Health at A.T. Still University, a school which he helped found as assistant professor in the program in medical ethics, humanities, and law at WMED Dr. Crutchfield, conducts clinical ethics consultations, teaches medical students and residents, and conducts research in medical ethics. So this guy teaches future generations of doctors. We wonder what's wrong with our health system. Sounds like a eugenist, eugenicist to the core, doesn't he? Thinks it's moral and right. How do you justify this notion? That moral bioenhancement should be compulsory and done covertly to unknowing, unsuspecting, unwilling, and uncooperative people without their consent. And these are the people that teach many of the up-and-coming doctors, psychologists, these type of people. And I've always told you, and I'll say this again, anytime you see an ethics committee or some such thing, understand the, re the only reason, the primary reason for the existence of this ethics committee or some such thing, as it were, is because they want to do something they know is wrong, but they will come up with all kinds of ways to justify that wrongdoing. Because they're going to do it anyway. And that's the whole point of having an ethics program. 
or an ethics committee, or having a science of ethics, because you know what you want to do is wrong. You know in your core, to your the core of your very being, that what you want is wrong. But you think you're so smart, you could come up with reasons and ways of justifying that behavior. And this is the danger of something like moral bioenhancement, because it's based on this whole notion of moral relativism, which has no absolutes. There's no absolute standard of right or wrong. So then who gets to decide what's moral? And what's this biological basis of morality? Where does it stem from? And you have guys like this out there touting these ideas openly in academia. These are the people that train up the next generation. Doctors, lawyers, psychologists, psychiatrists. Teachers, more teachers. And they poison these people's minds with this absolute garbage and crap. Justifications for wrongdoing. And then acting like the heroes and the good guys when they do the wrong thing. And they force their will on somebody else. And of course, this sounds very much like occultism, doesn't it? Do as thou will is the whole of the law. And of course, these people want their will to supersede yours. That's the ultimate form of occult power, don't you know? If your will supersedes somebody else's, well, that makes you almost a god in that sense. It's the same notion. Call it what you will here. It's all the same thing, though. It all stems from these occult teachings as well, once again. And these people probably are totally unaware of it, but this is the spirit behind it the whole spirit behind this notion of things. Same thing. Same processes and methodologies and reasonings as the dark magicians, the dark occultists who run things. So, look at what's been done in this world, look at where we're at, and think about this. Ponder upon it. This is food for thought, ladies and gentlemen. Something for you to think about. This is something you've probably never heard of before. Probably won't hear anybody else out there talking about this. But this is a massively important subject. Moral bioenhancement. And I think with the advent of these technologies that we're seeing, things like Neuralink coming online here, and various other things, this will be a topic of hot debate in the very near future, once again, I'm certain. But your very cognitive liberty is at stake. Your own cognitive liberty may be at stake here. The thought police may become a very real thing. We certainly see much of the push for the technologies to do that. And how will they get you to comply? Well, I think we've shown some backlash 
over the course of the past three years with all the various mandates and things they tried to instill on everybody and force upon everybody. And even though there was a total 69% compliance rate to all of it, they still got a 31% resistance to that. Pushback from that, and now the numbers are getting greater. So they didn't achieve that parietal split that they need, that 80%, that 80-20 split, 80%, 20% split that they need in order to be able to implement things across the board in that way. So very much, I think, their experiment with trying to go about this in a way that did not involve biological enhancement of some sort to morally transform people in society. I think it was an abject failure in some regards for them. So now they probably are more apt to consider these types of methodologies moving forward into the future. And perhaps they've wargamed this all out. Who am I to say? I don't know. That bit is conjecture. I'll tell you that much. That bit is conjecture and speculation on my part. But certainly, this is a real thing. Moral bioenhancement, it has been argued in the academic peer-reviewed journals for a long time now. And we see some of these spurious connections that have been made to the pandemic situation response. And the justification for doing this, in their view. So that being said, I think it's something we need to consider and we need to take seriously and we need to keep an eye on this. Because largely, I think this is the reasoning for the whole pandemic response. Is to see where we're at and get an accurate measurement of just how far they need to take this into the transhumanist future. So the next few years, I think, is going to be a wild ride, folks. So anyway, I hope that this was informational for you. I hope you found some value in this. I think this is one of the most important topics that we are facing today. And it should be talked about more. But sadly, nobody's talking about it. Nobody. Except in the oh-so-high-and-mighty academic peer-reviewed journals. You have a bunch of these eggheads maybe arguing about it a little bit and pushing the ball further down the field for the justification of such a thing. But by and large, the public is largely unaware of this. And think about the implications, and think back to that old YouTube video. Look back at that video called Fun Vax, and consider the possibility. Consider the possibility. This has been out there as part of the synchromistic metadata in the information field for a long time. This notion of vaccines as a means of modifying human behavior or medications modifying human behavior or various other means, brain chips, nanotechnologies, substances, Radio frequency waves, all of these things have been considerations and have the implication that it may be possible to do. So what's stopping them from doing it? Well, they would need moral justification to do so, and I think they've gotten enough of their academic lapdogs here to take up the cause and give them the justifications 
to do these very things. And I don't put it past them. So we need to keep that in mind as we move into the future here. Keep our eye on the ball here. Don't let this topic escape your view. Thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.